Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, all around other human, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. She is indeed an all around human. <laughs> On today's show, the all around human and I are joined by <laughs> Lawrence Woolard, Richard Gorman, and Dakota. Rosenfeld, three fellow blood brothers living with severe hemophilia, and three co-authors of an article titled Improving Patient-Informed Consent for Hemophilia Gene Therapy, The Case for Change. They join us to discuss the contents of the article, their reasons for working on it in the first place, and their outlooks on clinical trials, gene therapy, informed consent, and more. Hey, and thank you all for listening to Bloodstream, and remember to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode, keep up with Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And lastly, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, or if you have questions for Patrick or myself, please email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. can be related to anything healthcare or human, because Amy's an all-around human. I am a human. And can receive any questions. Would love questions about being human. <laughs> so, Instagram, <laughs> Twitter, Facebook. Find the Bordeaux, 87. So we've got uh, <laughs> the topic of the day, Amy, gene therapy, clinical trial. It's like the topic that just keeps on it's giving. Never ending. We'll never never stop talking about it. We'll never stop talking about it. And I know there's so much to it, but I really do think this is an important topic that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, even though it's starting to percolate a little bit. So it's cool that we have these guys on the show. They're three experts, they're patients, which I think right. is awesome, but they're professionally engaged in hemophilia and they're working together to call out some really important concerns that I found fascinating. So I think it's wonderful. Likewise. And I think the advocacy that they're doing is tremendous. And I'll say it, I'm psyched that we're having them on today. I am as well. I am as well. It's and always a good time with Lawrence Willard. You know oh my I mean? goodness. I mean, it's never a bad time. I was going to say, talk about energy in a bottle, but I don't even think there is a bottle. I think he's just a, a, a moving orb of energy. Yeah. There's no bottle. There's no container. It's just moving around the globe, mainly in the UK. But yeah, we're going to get to that in a moment. Listeners, first, I do want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes. That's right, Takeda. Takeda has got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Rich, Lawrence, and Dakota will be joining Amy and I here in a second. But Amy, before we get into the interview, is there anything that you would like to share with me and the Bloodstream listeners today? <laughs> oh my goodness, what did I just unleash? No, because it just feels like that's a question. Like, is there anything to share? There must be something to share. <laughs> the funny thing is, I, I have in the script I know, a, a response. response. I and I'm no like, good Lord, what am I supposed to share? I have nothing, to, and literally, I've been thinking, I'm like, what am I supposed to share? Well, I had an English muffin with peanut butter today oh, for breakfast. Congratulations. And that's what I have to share. And then I went into my desk to pick up my computer to come into the office today, and there were two almonds sitting there, and so I just ate them. Good. Which is fine. It's it's good. Uh, my boyfriend, Rob, ran the LA Marathon yesterday. And yeah. it's like, it's his third marathon, but it's, it's his first, like, big time marathon. Mm. And it was my first marathon as well, and it's just a bunch of people down in Central 
Century City and Did you have a good time? Did you did you make a good time? We did have a good time. I mean there were I tried you know, to make a joke about you running it also, like the oh. time was good, but my joke was poorly timed and badly executed, so I just have to call it out. I just I just you know, like if I run, I run for like a max three miles. And it's never usually that. And it's just so I can eat like an entire pizza later. It's like, well, I'm yes. gonna run today and then I'll be able to eat Taco Bell later. Like that's it. So I respect runners, but it just looked ridiculous but yeah. it was it was a big it was a great energy and congrats to everybody like 15,000 people ran that marathon whoa it was crazy so I, I'm guessing he didn't finish fourth this time no. oh no but he ran because he the New York City Marathon was yesterday as well so he ran the virtual New York City Marathon as well so it was like two marathons in one and he was 754 I think out of I don't know how many in NYC so anyway that, that was like seems pretty good it's so right? good let's I mean I think that's good that's good. Yeah. As far as we're concerned, that's good. The bloodstream bar has been reached. So congratulations to Rob. Well but done. But now, Patrick, is there anything that you want to share before the interview? Uh, well, Amy, thanks for listening. Um, I actually do have something here. I knew Scripted. it. I knew you'd have something. I knew it. <laughs> so we're talking about gene therapy, clinical trials, and informed consent. So I thought it'd be appropriate to mention there was an article I saw in Fierce Biotech on November 3rd that announced that Pfizer and their partner Sangamo Therapeutics have voluntarily paused their phase three clinical trial of their factor eight gene therapy to change the protocol. The protocol change was prompted by the discovery that some patients had factor eight activity of 150% or more, potentially raising their risk of blood clots. The patients are taking anticoagulants to cut the risk of clotting and nobody has had a thrombotic event so far. I'm going to repeat that part. Nobody has had a thrombotic event so far. Even so, Pfizer and Sangamo have stopped dosing while they amend the protocols to give guidelines for the clinical management of elevated factor eight levels. So I did want to just make sure to mention that given what we're talking about here today about informed consent. And as you're going to hear the fellows bring up in a little bit, you can only consent to that which you know you're consenting to. Right, and right. So with something with as many known unknowns as gene therapy, the reason that we're having a discussion about what is informed consent really mean is gene therapy has sort of forced us to take a closer look at what what is that moment or process, better yet, what does that actually entail? And this felt like a very appropriate article to mention here at the top and timely too. This was on November 3rd. So again, third time, nobody has had a thrombotic event so far in the clinical trial that Pfizer and Sangamo Therapeutics have going for a factor eight gene therapy product. However, with the elevated factor eight activity levels, while they change this protocol, the trial will be paused. So presumably that will be unpaused at some point in the not too distant future. And when we catch wind of that, we will give you the update here as well. And I just want to say, you know, I think this is a part of the scientific process, like bravo to Pfizer and their, you know, researchers for, you know, realizing this, obviously, and, you know, this is this is what they're trying to figure out. So bravo to the scientists and obviously bravo to the patients that are, you know, considering going on a gene therapy trial. I mean, you really, truly are a part of kind of this investigative process for all of this. And it's hugely brave. And we all thank you from the bottom of our hearts in this community and the scientific community. We couldn't do it without you. Cosine, cosine. So you can read more about the trial in Fierce Biotech. There's a link in the program notes. But now let's Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Patient informed consent. <laughs> informed consent. For hemophilia gene therapy, the case for change with authors Lawrence Woolard, Richard Gorman, and Dakota Rosenfeld. 
Amy and I are now joined by Lawrence Bullard, Rich Corman, and Dakota Rosenfeld, the authors of Improving Patient-Informed Consent for Hemophilia Gene Therapy, The Case for Change. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for joining from all over the place. And from what I understand, you guys haven't actually gotten to see each other in a while. Is that right, Lawrence? It's true. It's really good to see each other's faces. Maybe that's not reciprocated with the guys, but it is from my end. And obviously to see you, Patrick, and, and Amy as well. So that's Lawrence. Coda and then Rich, if you guys just wouldn't mind introducing yourself to the audience that can hear your voice, match the names, and, and then we'll jump in. Hey, everybody. So my name is Dakota Rosenfeld, and I'm a medical science liaison with Genentech Roche. Super excited to be here and have this chat. And likewise, it's great to be able to see my colleagues' faces uh, for the first time in a while. Thanks, Dakota and Rich. I'm Rich Gorman. I'm a research fellow at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK, and I work on issues to do with bioethics and social science and patient involvement. So it's wonderful to be here today. Uh, it's wonderful to meet you. Rich and I were just uh, noting we haven't met each other prior to this. Lawrence, Dakota, and I know each other, but this is the first time I'm meeting Rich and also recognizing that Rich has an awesome podcast voice. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> My goodness. I may have a lot of questions for you, Rich. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, it's what we do here on Bloodstream. We recognize talent. You know what I'm saying? Like we recognize talent. Just to confirm, I don't sound like Lawrence then. I don't have that accent. <laughs> No, no. I just go off on one, right? And I'm just loud. <laughs> Loud's an accurate characteristic. It's not the only one, Lawrence, but it is an accurate one. Thanks, Patrick. Cheers. <laughs> you got it. My, my pleasure. All right, let me read the plain language summary from your paper, which, by the way, thank you for that. I mean, I can read an abstract and love a good abstract, but also like reading the plain language summary. So let me read this so that listeners have this bedrock before we get into the, the weeds here. Again, it's titled Improving the Informed Consent Process for People Living with Hemophilia Considering Gene Therapy. Gene therapy is the process of replacing faulty genes with healthy ones. And hemophilia gene therapy involves introducing a working copy of the gene for the clotting factor that the patients are missing. Following treatment, patients should begin producing their own clotting factor normally. However, people living with hemophilia need to be fully informed regarding the potential benefits and risks of gene therapy and what this means for them, whether as part of a research study or routine medical care. Patients must be respected and supported to make decisions about their own health and well-being, recognizing their legal and moral right to set personal goals and make treatment choices. For this to happen in practice, patients should be aware of their individual health needs, understand the effects of treatment, and consider lifestyle preferences in relation to their decisions. This article attempts to describe how informed consent is obtained in hemophilia gene therapy clinical trials, what affects a patient's ability to make decisions, and the availability of information and support to respect and protect the interests of people with hemophilia. Regulators responsible for approving medical products have published guidance on informed consent for physicians and pharmaceutical manufacturers in hemophilia, including for gene therapy. Recommendations have been made about the best ways for people with hemophilia to discuss gene therapy with their physicians. Yet, poor communication of complex topics, such as gene therapy, can be problematic, especially if patients lack the skills and confidence to understand and discuss the science, or for physicians with limited time in clinic. We propose strategies to improve the consent process so patients feel more able to make informed decisions about new treatments. Further research is needed to find new creative approaches for educating patients and ensuring that the informed consent process for gene therapy and hemophilia is 
ethical. Okay, so that's what we're here to talk about. Was that just a plain language summary? <laughs> that's just the plain language How summary. How big's the article? <laughs> <laughs> you wrote this. Is this the first time you're getting... <laughs> All right, Lawrence, let's start with you. How did this project and this paper come to be in the first place? And then, uh, you know, without stepping on the whole rest of the interview, if there's a couple of key findings you want to shout out right off the top, I'd be interested in hearing them. From the top, really, I think what should be made aware to the audience is that all three of us live with severe haemophilia. And I think we're all very proud members of the bleeding disorders community. Also, I think what's important is that we have some transatlantic perspectives, obviously me and Rich being based in the UK and, and Dakota in the US, and also a mix of advocacy, research and, and medical experience and expertise that I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the, <laughs> the lads would agree as well, you know, fits fits really nicely. For sort of bigger context, you know, and, and as you've been reporting on, on bloodstream, gene and cell-based therapies are, are undergoing a somewhat of a renaissance that we know hold immense promise for people living with genetic conditions such as haemophilia. Um, and I've actually got some stats here that since the first authorised human gene therapy clinical trial for Gaucher's disease, which was in 1988, 16 products have been approved globally. And today, around 1,200 companies worldwide are actively developing advanced therapy medicinal products, or ATMPs, and around 1,320 industry-sponsored clinical trials are ongoing, including obviously several for haemophilia A and B. So it's sort of within this context that we first did our sort of formal collaboration on a letter to the editor, which we published in November 2020 to the Haemophilia Journal. And that was about addressing patient education priorities mm -hmm. in the era of gene therapy for haemophilia, where we essentially made a call to action that, you know, we need to take more of a cohesive, structured and inclusive approach to patient education through community co-production. Mm -hmm. And that was very much to ensure sort of equity of access to information and opportunity for people living with haemophilia to become informed and participate in treatment decision making and ultimately reduce barriers for those less engaged and, and activated in their care. So it's sort of a natural step, really, that, you know, we wanted to kind of focus in on this whole informed consent piece. And considering the fact that, you know, as a community, we're likely to have the first commercial gene therapy approved within the next two years. So we're really interested in that, the theory and practice of decision making and informed consent within clinical trials currently, but also the implications for post-licensure. Right, sure. In that context, that there are 16 commercially available products today, if I understood you correctly, there are 16 right now. There are another 1,200 that are being worked on at different companies around the globe. And I know there are different places that have projected out the amount of approved products over the next five years. So when you say Renaissance, I say Renaissance, you say Renaissance, potato, potato. <laughs> That could just be my Essex, though. I don't even know if that's English. That could just be my Essex. <laughs> it's true within hemophilia, but then, you know, you mentioned in this paper that there's an opportunity within hemophilia to set some gold standard best practices here. And I think, you know, providing that greater context makes clear, Amy, to me, you know, what that opportunity really is. I agree. I agree. Rich, you know, Lawrence just teed up the idea of informed consent. So kind of moving from that piece that was first published last year, and I should mention too, this piece was published on September 26th for the first time in 2021. Lawrence was just referencing a piece from last year that was focusing on the co-creation of educational materials, and I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit. But can maybe you talk, Rich, about the move from that to focusing on this idea of informed consent? And then you introduce in the paper the idea of 
adequate informed consent. So how did informed consent become the focus of the work that you, Dakota and Lawrence embarked on? And what, what is adequate? informed consent? What does that mean? That's just a huge question, isn't it? That's the whole field of bioethics trying to figure that out. And this is just our, our little contribution and, and ideas. The idea of informed consent, I think particularly for, for me and, and, and Lawrence, not, not to speak for Lawrence here, but in the UK, we've had the inquiry recently. And as part of the inquiry, there was a bioethics panel. Part of that was, was looking at these kind of core principles, ethical principles of, of, of consent. And one of the things that I think we noticed was how people within the community suddenly found this as a really valuable language and vocabulary to talk about aspects of medicine and your access to different types of medication and, and technological developments and using kind of that very formal kind of almost quite stuffy language of bioethics is actually a really empowering way to think about future choices. This is maybe a really useful language to sort of not reclaim, but bring back into this conversation very specifically. And obviously, it's it's, it's a concept with a huge history that, that we talk through in the paper, which is, is why it is quite long, as, as Lawrence has just realised. I think you know, one of the things that is very interesting is how does this translate to this new era renaissance of gene therapy? I think one of the things that we land on is this idea of consent as a process, not this, do you give your consent in that moment mm. as this kind of one-off event, but how can you ensure that consent is this constant process, particularly when we are going into this new era where there are so many uncertainties and things that still aren't known about a lot of these technologies. How can you give your consent for something that you don't know and can't be told about? So it's, it's a really, I think, useful language to begin unpacking some of the complexity in this. And, and, and this is what I like to do you know, as, as a kind of social scientist. I like to unpack complexity, much to the frustration of my colleagues. I like to pluralize everything <laughs> and, and expand things and add questions. And Lawrence is laughing because he has a dartboard with my face on it that he it's uses true. whenever I give some feedback. It's true. I mean, Dakota have like our own private WhatsApp where I'm just like, that, yes. that rich guy, <laughs> why are we working with him? <laughs> Dakota, actually, speaking of expanding on things, would you mind expanding a little bit on this idea of adequate informed consent and, you know, Rich sharing kind of where he comes from and his point of view and, and wheelhouse, so to speak. What brought you to the table for this work? So for everybody that's listening, my background, so I'm a doctorate of pharmacy here in the United States. So I've been exposed to a varying degree of what it means to share information about clinical trials to patients, whether it is the inside part of things where it's like, is this going to resonate with people? Or if it's the patient side of things or patient facing things of we are actually sharing the forms with them within a health system setting. The main focus and push from my end of things was always related to that blank stare sometimes that people got whenever you are sharing information with them. It was primarily on the patient facing side, but that stare of just this is not resonating. I am really not getting this, but I'm going to nod my head because you're my doctor, you're my care team, and you sound like you know what you're talking about. That to me was one of the guiding lights, if you will, of Ooh, okay, there needs to be some set of standard, especially as we get into these more complex therapies that are anticipating approval over the next two, three, five, six years out, not even just in hemophilia across different therapeutic landscapes maybe there should be some kind of framework, some kind of groundwork that gets laid that says this is the standard that we should look towards. And a lot of it comes down to doing what these therapies are there to do. It's to help improve patients' lives. 
the concept of making sure that patients understand what they're signing up for and understand what implications it could have on them in the future, it all goes down to this is for the patients. So we need to make sure it's a patient-centric approach. You identify a few current challenges to achieving adequate informed consent. I want to read down the list. I think there's five headlines in the paper, and then we can maybe spend a minute on each of them. And we'd be curious to hear if each of you have particularly strong feelings about one or another. That would be very interesting. So the five challenges as listed, information presentation, patient comprehension, therapeutic misconceptions, consent forms, and therapeutic optimism and hype. So let's start with information presentation. Why is that a current challenge? To pick up on where Dakota left off, it was a great summary because I think, you know, we're considering a quote-unquote irreversible therapy, which is very different to, you know, traditional medicine today and and obviously within the context of haemophilia where factor replacement and even non-factor now, you know, with hem libra, you know, that's something that can be altered or stopped. So I think that's why particularly informed consent related to gene therapy has a lot of prominence. Great point. In regards to to information presentation, so I think, you know, this is very much about obviously how information can be discussed and presented to patients or participants and that people's evaluations of benefit risk can be greatly swayed by such. So you're looking at the message framing effect, for instance, so positive or or, or negative messaging, the reading or, or discussion order. So is that very natural? as a consequence of just that level of engagement, or actually is there certain things that are being fed to patients and participants? Thinking about sort of subsequent information coming to light. So at what point do you disclose certain aspects of the treatment or trial? Is that at the start or is that at the end or is that in the mid? And how does that again influence or impact on a patient's decision whether to take part or not? Or again, if it's an approved therapy, whether to go on to that treatment? Lastly, I think we we address the sort of narrative and and numerical explanation of of relative versus absolute risk. So again, it just comes down to how is this being relayed to the patient or participant and that kind of subjective perception of benefit risk, you know, something that we also look at and address, which is a bit of a... It's a bit of an elephant in the room, to be honest. And I, I, you know, we haven't really discussed this, particularly in advocacy level, is around healthcare professionals Ooh. as well, how they're influenced by their own experiences and biases. So I think a really important point that we note about is that, particularly within a rare disease context, and if we think about haemophilia, many of the principal investigators are, you know, directors of centres or, or clinicians that you and I would know or both know or that you know our peers might just be turning up every six months to clinic appointments and and seeing Mm -hmm. and so I think we we also you know make the point around how there is greater likelihood that physician investigators um may mislead patients into clinical trials, albeit it's a very complicated matter and subject, and it's not always intentionally, but they may end up doing that because they themselves are invested in that ongoing research. So again, it's that question of, are clinicians looking at you as their patient, or are they looking at you as a subject of a research trial? Mm. Have you experienced, you know, incidents of this? Have you have you heard, you know, through the grapevine of patients that have regretted a decision or felt like they didn't have enough information about, you know, gene therapy? It just feels like gene therapy, the clinical trials are such a intense process. And I mean, what is asked of you is intense. I just wonder what people have just said through the grapevine. Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
You don't have to use any names. I mean, I I have stories. I have one hundred percent stories. But I but but the stories that I have heard have not necessarily been about what was to be expected in terms of like, well, this is what the process is. But they didn't know going in of like how it was going to quote unquote work. So that's the whole point of a trial is to see if it works. So there's a piece of me that's like, well, I don't know if that was like a physician's or a clinician's fault. I'm just curious. No, it's it's a really and, and obviously I, I really hope um, you know Rich and Dakota would want to add here. But I think <laughs> you just you touched on the importance of that disclosure piece, but also transparency, right? And transparency of researchers and physicians conflicts of interest as well because ultimately and again what the paper is really about is that you know safeguarding the rights of our peers should remain and ultimately be the top priority within the context of gene therapy we recognize particularly within the clinical trial scenario we we know and we understand that we need people to go into these trials for research to move forward we understand how important that is to potentially the opportunity of accessing novel technologies in our lifetime, but also future generations. But there are enrollment goals there as well. That transparency piece, and again, you know, and I'm sure, you know, later on in the conversation, we can actually discuss about more of those sort of evidence-based strategies to really enhance, you know, the, the informed consent procedure. Yeah, so to answer the question, yes, there has been some anecdotal discussions just from peers that we're who have received one of these therapies, maybe in the clinical trial setting. But the conversation that I've had with a peer specifically was not a full-on, I regret doing this. It was a, it's still too early to tell, but right now I understand all of the process because I know what's needed within a clinical trial setting. I knew it wasn't going to be one and done. I knew that we were going to have a lot to do. I just wasn't so sure how much of my time that would end up taking which to me resonated as a, you know, maybe they heard the information in the informed consent, but maybe it wasn't necessarily well conveyed, or maybe some of the more time consuming aspects of it might not have been conveyed appropriately. But also keep in mind from a bias perspective, one of these patients, they understand that this is a clinical trial setting. So they have that internal sense of this is a trial setting. I want to make sure that I do everything appropriately all the way through because what ultimately what happens within me being treated with this therapy is there will be impact to other patients once this therapy becomes approved. So it's almost a little sense of, yeah, I got this. I knew what I was kind of signing up for and I need to keep pushing through. So I wouldn't say it was a full on regret, but it's still kind of too early to determine. That same setting might not resonate as well once the therapy is approved. So outside of a clinical trial setting, there's only so much that can actually be dictated as part of your day-to-day other than what's set up between you and your treatment team for what your plan looks like. And even when it's approved, I mean, of course, we're going to be entering into that sphere. We all don't know what it will look like, but I assume that whoever decides to go that route and to utilize that treatment will be followed, you know, for scientific purposes. And so what will that look like? It's not just like switching your meds, you know, it's a renaissance, a renaissance, (laughs) I tell you. You know, another aspect that we address is around long-term monitoring. Consent should still apply, you know, around a a robust process for that, particularly when we're looking at the likes of the World Federation of Haemophilia Gene Therapy Registry you know, where they're looking to obviously recruit everybody that's been on a gene therapy clinical trial globally and obviously post-licensure, if and when that happens, you know, to follow up people for the lifetime, more than the mandated five years by the FDA. So what does that mean? And also, obviously, you know, the whole kind of data piece around that and how is your data being used? But also, you know, this this whole sort of 
suggestion and mechanism of, of a reconsent, mm-hmm. whether that would be considered because of not necessarily knowing the full details at the point of actually joining the registry. So there's lots of even issues around, like you say, Amy, you know, long term monitoring. Mm-hmm. Rich, I want to bring you back. And if you want to speak to, again, any of the challenges, we're we're kind of speaking to a number of them here, the information presentation, patient comprehension, consent forms, therapeutic misconceptions, therapeutic optimism and hype. But the other thing that seems to be coming through really clearly, and obviously is related to those five headlines, is patient expectations. What are the expectations? And at each of these various stages of, in this particular case, considering a gene therapy clinical trial, How do patient expectations muddy the waters, so to speak? And how do we address that piece? Let's put aside for a moment the need for better programs or or educational content. Let's put that aside. Put that aside. Beyond that, how do we dig into that piece of things? That's a great question. And I think, first of all, we need to know what patient expectations are. How, how do we find that out? And how do we make sure that we're not just asking like the same people over and over again, that we're not just asking you, Lawrence, me, Dakota, like, what, what do you guys think? What do you guys mm-hmm. expect from gene therapy? We'd probably have quite different expectations amongst all of us. And we might have quite high expectations because you know, we kind of read a lot of this stuff and, and engage with it. You need to sort of make sure you're not just engaging with the people that are already engaged and that we're actually reaching out into the community, but also the people that perhaps don't consider themselves part of the community. How do you find out what patient expectations are? I think yeah, that's a really important piece of work. I'm still unconvinced as to whether you people with haemophilia have a voice in setting those kind of expectations. People with haemophilia are told what you should expect and what you could expect, but you know, we need to kind of flip that dialogue so that it's also people with haemophilia getting the chance to kind of set that agenda and say, well, I'll engage with this therapy, You know, this, this kind of risk benefit analysis, like what kind of calculations are, are people willing to do? I think you know, we really have to know that, not just tell people, well, this is kind of what's available. This is what's on the table. So there's that kind of almost kind a qualitative scoping exercise of engaging with the community. Interesting. Consent needs to not be viewed as one and done in gene therapy. Gene therapy, the goal might be for it to be one and done, but consent has to be this process. Consent can't be one and done. And I'm really annoyed we didn't get that kind of pun and play on words into the paper. It could have been the title. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the next one. I was going to say, like, there's not going to be another paper. <laughs> this is interesting. I wonder if our being from different countries and in different systems and with different patient advocacy groups primarily intended to support us. I wonder if there's a difference a little bit here. Dakota, my take on, we'll say the National Hemophilia Foundation, for example, since Len Valentino was named the CEO, he's made it pretty explicit that there is a research-driven mission that guides NHF's work and that he really wants patient participation in that mission. And there have been various initiatives set up to get more participation from patients and from the patient community. Do you agree with Rich's point of view that Historically, generally in hemophilia, there's a top-down approach to what's right, what's wrong, best practices. Do you think it's maybe at all different for us in the US than it is in the UK? Do you see any change in the trend as you see it? I'm curious to know where your perspective aligns because I'm just struck by, I think maybe Rich and I have a bit of a different experience, but I don't know, maybe I'm also a little biased by some recent stuff. So Dakota, I'm curious to know your point of view on all that. Sure, that's a good question, Patrick. So not to publicly butt heads with my colleagues here or anything, but it is very evident from a historical stance. I would agree with him. I think historically that had been the case where it was a very top-down approach. It was just 
this is what it is. This is what we're looking at. Whether or not you want to be involved, that's up to you. Of course, it's your choice. However, this is the way that things are going. I have seen, and Patrick, you would know too, we're both pretty active in the community and attend as many big events as we can. We have seen that shift over the last couple of years. I'd probably say over the last five or six years. We have seen that shift where there has been more patient voice infused, no pun intended, into the conversations around the research initiatives, whether or not it's, you know, where is the impact being had from these organizations? There has been a lot more patient voice put in. But it's important to note that with this paper specifically, it's not necessarily a call out to treaters, to pharmaceutical companies, as much so it's also a call out to the patients themselves. Patients and patient organizations, patient organizations can only be as impactful as the activated patient allows them to be. So a big focus that we're hearing is we want to have more patient voice. We're seeing this from our national organization, specifically in the U.S. We want you all involved in what's going on. But that is only able to happen if you are willing to be activated, if you are willing to be engaged in the community and you're willing to have those difficult conversations. There might be some disagreement, but the concept is to be active. Use your voice to come out with that opinion so that we can keep moving forward. And I worry that that Second piece isn't happening to the degree that I believe it ought to. And to be even more specific, I feel as though the impact of the pandemic in the last year and a half plus, the longer it goes, the more I feel like it's really straining community connections, community ties, community focus, desire to be activated. I don't see the same levels of participation online from people. And I feel even though one may think, well, it's a pandemic, everyone's online. Wouldn't that be where the activity spikes? And maybe it did. But at this point, I think people are just sick of it. And then you don't have the in-person experiences rejuvenating you. I'm not getting to see you in person, Dakota, and give like a fresh breath to our interactions online. And that's everybody I know. Right. However, it has really bolstered telehealth. And it's just forced us and pushed clinicians in particular who are just, you know, stuck in their own ways to, you know, utilize telehealth. I I don't know how it is in the UK, but here in the States, the pandemic has really forced everybody to like have appointments, you know, online and to have communications with their HTCs online. Maybe we'll give an opportunity to have more of that relational component to this because as you guys are continuing to talk about it, and of course I am not a patient, but I am a human. I am a human who goes to the doctor's office. And it's relational. It's really a a two-person street. You know, the the activated patient coming, asking smart questions, you know, really poking the holes where they need to have this treatment, this therapy, this clinical trial work into their life for their objectives, their goals, what they want to do for heaven's sakes, even if it's just to play with their kids in the afternoon. And the physician really needs to be engaged, educated as well. And that's not always the case too. So I just see this as such a relational thing. Anyway, I'm just glad you guys are calling attention to it. Lawrence is right. Lawrence is raising his hand. Lawrence, yes. I didn't want to butt in again. Not ironically. This is the first time this has ever happened. He never raises his hand. He always just butts in. It was so tentative as well. Did you see me? It was like gradually rising. Yes, it was just in the corner. Lawrence, is there something you'd like to add to the dialogue? Please. Please, Patrick. Please. No, I, I think you've like you've you've touched on such like a massive point, and at least from my perspective, I think it's you know you guys over in the US are another beast when it comes to advocacy. And and Rich, you know, you might want to add here, but like from a UK context, there's treatment centres that are still forcibly switching patients to treatment, and those guys not necessarily understanding why that's happening. And so that 
goes against all the principles of what informed consent should be. You know, that essentially starts falling into acts of coercion. Um, you know, and that that's not what we don't, you know, we, we don't want to see that. And that's where, like Dakota's brought through as well, is that how, you know, and, and, and Rich as well around, you know, how PAGs are uniquely positioned, you know, to provide and drive patient education. Essentially, we need to hold everybody to account within the ecosystem of advocacy to ensure as many people within the bleeding disorders community, you know, are able to access the, you know, the level of provision and of education and support of their choosing. And certainly at a UK and European level, that's definitely not happening. Mm -hmm. And I think as well, that's again reflected in terms of, you know, in conference attendance, you know, we see the same folk turning up, you know, and often they're, you know, the advocacy leaders. And that's not to devalue that that conference or the content or any of the takeaways. But I think, you know, there should be an obligation on all of us to try to involve and support as many people as possible to get engaged, thus become informed whereby they can start advocating for themselves and their peers. Lawrence, along these lines, you mentioned earlier in the paper, you do address some evidence-informed strategies that you recommend to enhance consent procedures. So again, I'm going to read the four that are listed, and then we can open up the discussion. Making research consent materials fit for purpose. And Rich, maybe you can expand on that here in just a minute. Assessing health literacy and patient comprehension. Promoting therapeutic patient education programs and clarifying the role of the patient advocacy groups. Rich, would you mind taking that first one, making research consent materials fit for purpose? What are we saying there? It's really, you know, kind of like plain language summaries and, and also just, you know, making sure that you're not just handing someone a, a, just a ream of paperwork in the clinic when you've just talked at them, like, here, sign this consent form. How can you actually use that kind of paperwork, that process of, of completing a consent form to actually be a bit more meaningful and have that kind of dialogue, that kind of relationality that Amy was talking about. There are lots of ways to make consent a much more interactive process rather than just giving someone a sheet of paper saying, here are all the risks, you know, like three pages of, of, of risks. Right. It's 2021. Like, you know, why are we still doing things with, with like really long pieces of paperwork? How can we actually make that consent process a bit more interactive and involved? So there isn't just like a one-way conversation. We'd like to see the consent process is this kind of dialogue, constant dialogue with the opportunity to ask questions. If you're just given a, a form, like, do, do, you, do you feel empowered to be able to ask questions? You know, do you feel like if, if, if I don't understand the information in this, is, is, that, is that a failing on my part? Is that because I don't understand? Like, you, how, how can you kind of open up that, that consent process a little bit more? You get a 15 page form and someone hands it to you and they're like, you can initial here and sign here and then they stand there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't even expect me to, I'm not going to read this, but you don't expect me to either. <laughs> yeah. This is a game. Yeah. I don't know why we play this game. It seems kind of important that we don't play this game, but we all play this game. To your point, it's 2021. And if we lean into this idea of consent as a process, I wonder if that enables us to think a little more creatively about how can we break it out? So it's not like here's an encyclopedia of consent information sign at the end. We're going to be doing consent for a while. Why don't we break this into stages, make it more digestible? And to your point, have a dialogue around it. I'll be honest, I've never thought about consent in the way that we're describing it. I've thought about it as we talked, I think earlier, it's like it's a piece of paper and you sign it. It's a one and done. It's like, I've given my consent. Goodbye. And it's just like over now. <laughs> 
now. <laughs> I've never thought about it in these terms. It really is a paradigm shift and it, and it feels empowering actually as I'm, as I'm talking this out. I then get to maintain a bit of agency and, and like authority over my own life experience. It's not, I said something once and now ad infinitum, it's just this ad infinitum, ad infinitum, what, forever. This is just the path I'm on. So I'm really appreciating. I think that's what my big takeaway is. Consent as a process opens up so many doors to improve upon the challenges you guys have identified, create opportunities for meaningful dialogue, meaningful education, true comprehension and assessment that it feels as though that you guys might really be onto something. I do want to call out one specific that I'm curious about that's not on this list and maybe... Dakota or, or Lawrence, if you have a thought about this, of these four strategies, I am struck that physicians and the healthcare systems are not listed here. And we talked earlier about that. I, I think, Lawrence, you called it the elephant in the room, you know, referencing that the physicians may have biases and that there are other physician-related and medical center-related considerations here. I'm curious that there wasn't a particular strategy directed toward this physician medical center community. And I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that. And Dakota, maybe if you want to take that first. So it's kind of interwoven into all of the strategies. So a lot of it can't be done without full-on engagement from those treatment teams. So the point of it not being its own call-out is just it wouldn't happen if they weren't fully on board. So many of our topics are requests, so making sure that the health literacy is fully understood of your patients, making sure that the patient really comprehends what's being said can't be done without a well-informed care team, making sure that patient education programs are actually resonating or done so in a fashion or delivered in a way that those who might be of lower socioeconomic disadvantage, who make sure that they see the information, that can't be done without full-on engagement of the healthcare team to ensure that's actually resonating with those patients. So keeping it interwoven was a better tactic instead of having that specific call out because it truly is the foundational piece for making sure this process will work. Mm, that makes good sense. I appreciate that very much. And then I would just love for each of you to share kind of one last thought, either, you know, if there's something you want to underscore or something we didn't get on, or maybe uh, a look ahead to what might be coming next in your work. You know, I think we're all really grateful for the opportunity to come on the show. And it's just been really good to break some of this down and, and also just have a bit more of an informal chat about it after sort of what was like a six months process, putting it together, predominantly because of Rich, you know, with this. <laughs> asking some of the most ridiculous questions all the time but I think it's look I think first of all it looks like we've got some really positive traction and we've received some really well received comments which I think is great I think the next part is action. So I think certainly one of the key aspects that we spoke about was about that it should be mandatory to involve an independent patient expert with technical knowledge and ethical application of gene therapy within that consent process to co-opt as a liaison between prospective trial participants and, and, and researchers. So even there is like, you know, a straight call to action. And I think, you know, it would be great to understand what the likes of the WFH might think about that. And again, working with industry to, to understand whether something like that could actually be approached and formalised. I think that's really, really important. But hopefully we can see some progress, particularly around sort of as, as Dakota raised, around assessments of health literacy and patient comprehension. That doesn't necessarily just have to be for gene therapy. That should be standardised across all therapeutics, you know, and as a part of the clinical decision-making process so clinicians can actually tailor their delivery of information to patients' informational needs. So so, you know, maybe we come back on the show in like six to 12 months time and reflect to see whether, you know, any progress has been made around this. 
Sorry, was I inviting us back into the show, Patrick? <laughs> That's true. You did. But I half expected it, so it's okay. Rich Dakota, any final thoughts from either of you? Yeah, I think for me, one of the cool things is the way we're seeing, and, and you're obviously reflecting on, on our own experiences here, but patients, in inverted commas, like creating scientific knowledge now. So you're going back to what you were saying about participation, where actually it's not just participating, it's actually patients being up there as, as actually creating that kind of scientific knowledge and, and really contributing to, to, to your current understandings. And I think that's really cool to see. And I think it's something that I think, you know, hope we'll see a lot more of. And particularly in a European context, you patient participation participation is often the kind of come to a conference and tell us what life is like with hemophilia oh it's really sad you couldn't do sport when you're a kid and, and like, that's great you know people need to understand that that kind of lived experience but i think it's this recognition that patients also have expertise like really valid knowledge and expertise to contribute here on these kind of really complicated issues and actually you know, i'd love to see more you know, people with hemophilia people with other conditions kind of you know, writing papers and, and articles Great point. Dakota, you have the final word, sir. Yeah, of course. And I mean, other than that, which my colleagues have already outlined, because I agree entirely with that. But last thing I wanted to note is we approached this paper, we approached this concept in a solution-oriented manner. We saw a need, we needed to outline something, and we worked on it. So our expectation, or maybe not expectation, but hope, rather, is that those who are in a position to make a change approach it in an action-oriented manner. Like Lawrence said, actions speak much louder than words do. We've laid the groundwork and we're hoping that those who are in the position to make a change can be the change. Dakota Rosenfeld, Rich Gorman, Lawrence Woolard, the authors of Improving Patient-Informed Consent for Hemophilia Gene Therapy, The Case for Change. You can Google that and find it, or you can click the link in the program notes or in the episode page on bloodstreammedia.com. Thank you, gentlemen, for your work. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, let's bring you back on down the road and check in. Let's see what progress we're making. If you have any kind of follow-on work, it would be interesting to bring you on when that's published. So let's keep in touch about all this. And thank Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Cheers. It's been great to be here. All right. Well, there you have it. And thank you again to my hemo heroes, Lawrence, <laughs> Rich, and Dakota. You're hemo heroes. Yes, they yes. are. <laughs> thank you guys for joining us for that important conversation about the role and process keyword of informed patient consent. Listeners, I strongly urge you to check out and share their article. You can Google improving patient informed consent for hemophilia gene therapy. You're going to have to use the AE in hemophilia because they're oh. from not the US. Or check out the link in the program notes. Yeah, to, just go to the program you know, notes. Away. You know what I'm saying? Hey, our next episode goes live on Friday, November 26th. Oh my gosh, that's the day after Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, that's Black Friday. Oh my gosh, that's Bloodstream Podcast episode number whatever day is what it is. How many of these have we done? A lot. I don't know. We stopped oh using God, the we numerical. Number them. <laughs> Listeners, just to know, we're 90% confirmed on the guest and the timing, but we're not 100%. So we're just going to hold that back. I like so that. So it's going to be a little tease a little bit. So. Well done, this board. It will be a great <laughs> episode. It's going to be a great guest. Maybe even have a guest interviewer so oh. you know if you're not already subscribed please do subscribe to bloodstream wherever you get your podcast so that we can be back in your feed on november 26th and with that amy board that is all for this episode do you have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss is there an expert or a guest that you are dying to hear from? Do you want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Believe Limited or Bloodstream's projects? Well, email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. You will find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can follow Amy Board or Patrick James Lynch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Shout out to all the committed LinkedIn users out there. <laughs> <laughs> I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other host, Amy Board. And until 
next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.